Good morning. This morning we are in 1 Corinthians 5 again, and I'm covering verses 6 through 8. Next week will be um, 9 through, I think, the end of the chapter. I have the research already done. But 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, clean out the old leaven. I think the last time I preached, I must have had 20-some slides, so this time we're down to seven. I'm giving you a break. So let's go to the first verse, verse 6. I'll read that and pray, and we'll see what we learn from this text. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering your precious blood-bought children to remind each other of what you've done, to proclaim your word, to learn things that you've told us that we need to apply. And may we take to heart what you've said in your word, and may we um, serve you with sincerity and truth by your hope and grace. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So in the context, the last time I preached in this section of 1 Corinthians 5, we found out there was a very bad situation in Corinth that was being tolerated, and yes, even being puffed up about, and that was there was an incestuous man, and they had done nothing about it, and they were even pumped up or puffed up about their religious status. Paul is appalled about this and is writing very sternly, calling for change, for action, for church discipline. And I preached about that in verses 1 through 5. This man is to be removed, and Paul is demanding that it's dealt with, and he's already made a statement about that. And I, I, I did preach on that. You can look up that sermon. Now we're going to cover some more verses in the same section, and here he's using an analogy from the Feast of the Unleavened Bread in the Passover and from the reality of making bread. Not that I know that much about making bread. I usually just go buy it at the store. But uh, the yeast, once it's mixed with the dough, is going to make a whole loaf of bread. And it's going to be of the same texture and consistency. In unleavened bread, the, the feast, they're remembering that uh, when they came out of Egypt, they didn't have time, and it also speaks of the newness of cleaning house and starting new. So here it says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know? On that part, I want to make a few statements. There'll be more coming up in chapter 6. That question do you not know is a rhetorical question. And what they should know, they seem to not know based on their behavior. Do you not know as a rhetorical question is used 10 times just in 1 Corinthians. Paul had spent a year and a half in Corinth teaching and preaching, yet they had many problems after he went elsewhere. And so when he says to them, do you not know, the first one was in 
316. But what he's asking is, why don't you know what you should know? This should be obvious, but for some reason, it's not. So therefore, there's something that needs to change. That's the intent of that. I'll talk more about that when we get into chapter 6, where it's used six times in one chapter. Do you not know? Now, there's a different statement that will come up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, where in a different sense, he says, he talks about knowledge, and he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So they had pride in knowledge, but he's rebuking them by saying, Don't, do you not know? They claim to have knowledge, but they didn't know what they ought to know, this particular church. And so we'll look at that when we get to it. Leaven stands for sin, and this sin, when tolerated as it was being, was being done in Corinth, will spread and change the nature of the whole. And that's going to be the essence of what we'll be talking about. Sin, when celebrated, sadly to say, um, is not going to be of little import. It's going to change everything, and it's going to destroy the whole church. That's his point. In this case, there was a man living in incest. Now, let me uh, point out a few things about this. Boasting is something in the New Testament that can either be a positive or a negative thing, depending on what's boasted about. And I have some verses that we'll look at a little bit later on that. Here, the word is kakema, and in earlier, it was puffed up. We're talking about the same thing, puffed up, inflated, boasting, but here in something that's bad. Now, those of us today living in America in this particular era realize that what Paul is saying here, that they need to deal with this, is really kind of amazingly pertinent because now things are so confused that people do not even know what the term church means. Okay, so if there's something that's intrinsically evil, according to what God has said, probably there is something somewhere called church that celebrates it. And I think we all know that. And we need to have the Bible define for us what's true and what's false, what's holy and what is not, and what we need God to do to change us. Uh, Pastor Eric talked about this judge not is often taken out of context, and it's the one verse everybody knows. When Christians and when Paul speak about the things that the Bible says, we're not claiming superior status we're not claiming that everybody should think that we're holier than now. We're claiming that God delivers us from our enemies, not from our friends. And 
Christians who fall into sin are appalled when convicted by the Spirit, and we want God to set us free. Sometimes we need to be confronted. That's what church discipline is about. If we love the truth in the gospel, that's an opportunity for us to believe that if God's called us to be a certain way, and we know Jesus and love Jesus, he'll give us the grace to change. And what Paul sees as so dangerous is an entire car, well, is it one, like they had one building and they're all meeting in it. They didn't own buildings, but they gathered as the church in Corinth, wherever it may be. We'll find out in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that some people had bigger homes and they would meet there. But the point is this. If we're saying, good, this is a prominent thing, incest isn't bothering us that much, then we have this sort of serious, forthright uh, warning that this will become the very definition of the whole. Oh, yeah, I know that church. It's the incest church. Can you see how bad that is? And he said this is even the pagans wouldn't want this. So the the leaven analogy means that if they do not expel the proud sinner, the whole congregation will be corrupted. A little, mikros is the Greek word, and we can uh, probably think about what that means. We use the micro in English, but mikros, a little, it didn't take much. I'm not an expert baker, but I know that Leavened bread is leavened, and it turns into a loaf. Dr. Thistle says this, Paul calls attention to the unstoppable, spreading, disastrous influence on the nature and identity of the whole community, which is out of all proportion to what those who were self-satisfied evidently imagined could spring from a little case of one immoral relationship, even if one of an utterly outrageous nature, unquote. They didn't properly see how this is going to have a horrible impact on everything. Self-satisfied. And one of the things that's true about all who know the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior isn't that we're sinless now. It isn't that we can be sure that we're better than some other Christians, but is that we want God to change us so that we be more in conformity with Jesus Christ. That we be, uh, may God change us. We need change. I need change. And we agree that this is the what it should look like. God is at work changing us and giving us grace. I have a statement to make about this. This principle is also stated in Galatians, Galatians 5, 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. In the context of legalism, it's called a yoke of bondage. So this works both ways. Paul used leaven to describe a church that tolerated an immoral situation. He used leaven to describe in Galatians legalism. 
which would seem to be the total opposite. In one case, fellowship is based on keeping the law or being circumcised or uncircumcised. That's called leaven. In another case, you have immorality. Here's the unifying fact about this. The law that's binding on Christians is given by Christ and his apostles. And to make yourself a lawgiver is to put leaven in the church or to tolerate what's intolerable is also leaven in the church. So if you compare Galatians 5.9 with 1 Corinthians 5.6, you'll see that both are called leaven. What's the alternative? The word of God, the grace of God, and being new creatures in Christ. That'll be one of our applications. Jesus talked about leaven, which would be hypocrisy. Luke 12, 1, Jesus said, "Beware." this is the second part of the verse, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, a hypocrite is a play actor pretending to be something. What we want to do is have God be at work in our hearts so that we can worship him and fellowship with one another and know that God, the merciful Savior, changes us and we can rejoice in him and not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, A, the first part of the next verse. Here's an imperative. I promised a long time ago to point out when I find imperatives in a verse that I'm preaching. And here is one. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, A, NASB. Clean out the old leaven so that, which is a purpose word, you may be a new lump. In this case, this is not going to be tolerated. We're not going to, in Corinth, tolerate the man who is living in sin, in this case, incest. The word for clean out, ekathiro, purge out, ek is a prefix, would mean out or put out. And the other word is for purge, or where we get our noun catharsis. Most of us have heard that. Something being a catharsis would be to clean or clean. So purge out. Be done with this. And the last I have here, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, where Paul purposed that there was no repentance. This one would be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the body, but the purpose that there may be repentance and salvation. So, so that is a purpose clause. And what is the design purpose of the church discipline? The new lump. What is the new lump? The new shows the corporate solidarity of the church. And what that means, and we'll have an application in 2 Corinthians 5.17 about this. What that means is that when we're in Christ... We're no longer in the world in a sense of living according to the world's beliefs, no longer living in darkness, no longer under bondage to Satan and his lie, 
but those who are in Christ are new. And that means Jesus is the Lord. The word of God is binding on our hearts and minds. And that we believe his promises that God is changing us. And that whatever happens, we'll get back up and ask for prayer from the church. And we'll trust God to change us. We're not going to say, well, I'm a mess, so I'll find a a place that's called church where this is just the way we want it to be. It's really sad, frankly, and I think the biggest problem right now, 2023, is if somebody says, well, you need to be going to church. What have you actually said to someone? Not much of anything. You might go down to the emergent church, which is Eastern religion. You may go down to the church that is organized around a particular sin that they decide isn't sin. It could be anything. You may go down to the liberal church that believes there's no miracles, the dead aren't raised, and all you need to do is try to be religious and be a better person. You could go anywhere. It's called church. So what's to be said about this? We need to define what it means to be a Christian biblically. Repentance from sin, forgiveness, the blood atonement, saved from the wrath of God, new creatures in Christ. And we need to define the congregation gathered together anywhere. It doesn't need to be in a church building. As people who together love God, he's the head. Different ones have different gifts. We serve him and one another, and we're corporately asking God to help us. We want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not saying to people, well, I'm better than everybody else. And how's that going to happen? It's only going to be as we cry out to him and believe his promises. No new here, as I say in the notes, shows the corporate solidarity of the church. Jesus said in Matthew, I will build my church. Who's the head? The Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Gardner says this, the problem lies not just with one individual, but the whole community. The behavior of the one affects the entire congregation. However, their self-centered arrogance and their confidence in their spiritual status have produced a lethal combination, unquote. And Paul now is going to, in verse 8, talk about the Passover and something that we can learn from that. Notice, uh, I think Dr. Gardner was right about the spiritual status. One thing about sinners, and even sinners saved by grace, is we like to keep score. And I mentioned in Sunday school, you can see that throughout Luke-Acts. We like to keep score. And the one thing that interests us is who's the greatest. Now, when you look at Luke, 
when they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there's some problems, but at the end, they're arguing about who's the greatest. And you see in Luke, for example, people picking out places of honor at the table. We see at the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. What was the problem? Status. You sit out there, we'll sit here. We're the important people. You get crumbs, we get the good stuff. And this propensity to want to keep score in a sense of who's doing better and who's the greatest is a huge problem, and we'll be seeing it throughout 1 Corinthians. The, I think the key solution to it that's really helped me, and I think, thank God that finally at this uh, older age of teaching first verse of First Corinthians was the passage where it says that we're not to judge, wait until the Lord comes. We don't know who's doing better as far as Christians comparing one to another. The, the passage, the chapter on chapter three about God will test each man's work with fire and the Lord knows. Do not go passing judgment four at a time. So this is really freeing. It's liberating. I don't know if I'm a very good preacher or a great preacher or a terrible preacher. I don't know. It's not my job to know. And that's for the Lord to figure out. And the other thing I don't know and you don't know is people have different gifts. We'll see that in chapter 12. How do we know that somebody nobody ever noticed is doing far better with what they've been given than the ones that we give accolades to? And really, it's liberating to not know. We know what God's called us to do. We know what sin is and what it isn't. But we can't try to keep score. We're one in Christ. We need one another. And the member that seems less Seemly, if anything, should be given more abundant honor. We'll see that later. Now let's go to this uh, 7b in the Passover, 1 Corinthians 5, 7b. Just as you are in fact. Now this is our status in Christ. It's what matters. Just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Why can he say you are unleavened to the church at Corinth? He tells us why. The Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. The thing that makes them clean is the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That makes us a part of a corporate community, cleansed, forgiven, part of the family of God, released from sin, not yet perfected, but agreeing on what we need. One thing that's uh, always touching is new people who come in and say, well, I can't believe that God would even allow me to be part of this. It's an amazing thing. When God brings a lost sinner to faith, it cleanses us and makes us part of his family.
So the imperative, notice I say here, become what you are. It's exactly what he is saying. Now, in the Greek, you have these moods. So I have here uh, the imperative. That's like our command or exclamation mark. Clean out is grounded in the indicative. Now, let me explain the Greek a little bit. Indicative in the Greek would be asserted by the author as being true. Okay? Indicating, the indicative. The subjunctive would be, it might be. The imperative is, do it, it must be. So the indicative is, you are. You are unleavened. Well, how can he say that? Because we still got problems. Because this is what we are in Christ. Christ made the once for all cleansing sacrifice on the cross. Christ is the unblemished lamb whose blood redeems. And if you want to turn with me, let's do that. 1 Peter, we'll start with 1 Peter 1, we'll start with verse 17. Let's look at Peter, and I think we can learn something about this. 1 Peter 1, I'll read 17 through 19. I have the New American Standard here. If you address, verse 17, as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Notice it's a temporary time, and we want to think God does know, and I need him to help. Verse 18, knowing. Okay, so that's what we need to do. Conduct yourself a certain way. Now look at verse 18, 1 Peter 1, 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Really the same concept right here. The imperative is grounded in the indicative. You are redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished. Only Christ is the true Passover lamb who shed his blood once for all. They had the feast year after year. Hebrews talks about this thought about going there for applications, but I didn't. Um, So many scriptures, so little time. But uh, the priests had to go back year after year because they were sinners. Another sacrifice, another feast, another lamb. The lamb selection, they had many lambs, many bulls and goats, all the sacrifices over and over. But Christ did what we need perfectly, the sinless one, God the Son, the creator of the universe, second person of the Trinity, came into our world, lived a sinless life, born of a virgin, predicted his own death, burial, resurrection. He died for sins once for all and said it's finished. And when he was raised, vindicated all his claims. So if we are indeed uh, redeemed from the feudal life we were living by the precious blood, 
then there's reason to have hope and reason to live differently at the same time. Both things are true. The imperative, clean out the old leaven, is grounded in the indicative Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Both are true. And I will say this, preaching this this way is a sanctifying thing for all of us. There are so many who would agree with this, but then say, but what the church needs is 10 steps on how to be more organized in your finances. Well, I just say that one because tax day is coming up. Uh, Or 12 steps how to be happier at, at your work situation. Or five ways to do this. So human wisdom is substituted because many do not believe, even evangelicals do not believe that preaching the word of God is a means of grace that will change us. We need how to. But Paul didn't believe that way. He said, clean out because you're clean. Does that make sense? I hope it does. In your status before God, the moment you believed on Jesus Christ and trusted him, you're clean. Because of that, being in Christ, you can change, and you don't have to keep living the same way. God is powerful and working to change us. Let's go to verse 8. I had a bunch of other things here. I forgot to start my... Well, I hope you folks have time. I forgot to start the timer. So that means I get to your dog. What else did I have? Okay, let me see. Here's something I want to share with you. I wrote this down, so I want to make sure you get it. If there was no redemption, cleansing, or promises as a people of God, there would be no urgency to change anything. This is the statement I put in my notes. God delivers us from sin and bondage, not from our friends. In their case, if the incestuous man was their friend and this is all good, how do you get delivered from your friends? He delivers us from our enemies, right? When what is called church turns into a celebration of something which is sinful, cannot be pleasing to God, then the word church being used to describe something the New Testament does not know as church at all. I think I did say that. Let's go to verse 8. Let me read the text. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we have a not but, not but, not this way, but this way. Celebrate the the feast would be in the Old Testament, the annual feast of unleavened bread and how they kept that part of the Mosaic Covenant. For us, under the New Covenant, this is how we live every day, 365. This is how we live as those living as redeemed people, celebrating Christ and knowing that we're different. We're in Christ. Now, the leaven here, the words malice and wickedness are two words that denote what's really bad. 
Kakia and Paniria. Every form of iniquity. Someone says malice and wickedness here in this translation. And uh, what we are seeing is that we don't want to celebrate what we used to be. We want to celebrate what we are in Christ and are becoming by his grace and will be fully at the resurrection. So this is why everyone is called to come and believe the gospel. And it's not where you've been, it's where you're going and with whom. So we cannot celebrate uh, our newness in Christ with the old leaven of wicked godless, godless living. We are free from bondage and we rejoice in that freedom. We can rejoice in freedom even when we don't fully have it yet. We do fully have it in that should the Lord return, if you're in him, he's coming for you. We'll go to be with him. And as long as we're here, he's still at work changing us. Why teach the word of God? Why teach theology to the church? Why go through all this detail? Because that's what changes us. The truth sets us free. Human wisdom won't change us, but God will. So Paul used the feast as a metaphor for living holy lives. Christian life is not sinfulness cloaked with religion, but it's transparently changed. Now, that's the other side of the bot here. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The word translated sincerity is only used three times in the New Testament in this form. The other two are in 2 Corinthians one of which I have in an application. But looking up the root of the word in some of the scholarly sources, I find that the word had to do with the light of the sun cleansing something. The, the trans, that's why some would translate it transparency. And this isn't, how would you say it? This isn't, in a counseling sense, true tales of the flesh. That doesn't really work. Uh, where people get together and just, uh, in an inappropriate way, say all kinds of bad stuff about this and that and everything and how bad it is. This sort of transparency is that we are not putting on a show. We're not trying to convince somebody else that we're pious, but we're knowing that God's redeemed sinners and asking him to cleanse us and give us even more freedom from actual presence of things that should be cleaned out. So um, transparency is a good idea. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, it's used where it's contrasted with those who are peddlers of God's word. How many have heard about all the scandals of the uh, really high-profile preachers making all kinds of claims, and it turns out, they don't believe any of it. It's just a big scam to get money from unsuspecting Christians. It's happened over and over again. Paul uses a, this word for uh, those who are peddlers. That's bad. The word is used in contrast. We're open. Paul is who he is. That's what he preaches. That's something different. 
Philippians 1.10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere. It's used an adjective there, and blameless until the day of Christ. Sincere and blameless till the day of Christ. Uh, dear ones, I say this knowing that this is God's word to all of us, and it's a hopeful word, not a condemning word. If we think hard enough about how we live and think day by day, we can all get pretty discouraged. But when we look at the promises of God, we have hope. If God can use me, he can use anyone. If God can cleanse me, he can cleanse anyone. And putting the hope in the truth here, you are unleavened. Therefore, we can see things cleaned out and get rid of. This is a good time to preach this, isn't it? Uh, It's January. You notice what's on sale? Storage. You go to storage, organization. Put file cabinets here. Because people will start this time of the year, at least here in Minnesota. Everything in the desk is a big mess. I better get it all organized. So that's what makes us think we better get things straightened out. But here, this is straightened out so we're living more like who we really are as in Christ. Now, let's go to two applications. Number one, we must avoid boasting about the wrong things. Number two, the call to change is grounded in the reality of being new people in Christ. That should be obvious from what we've already studied. But let's have more hope that that really happens. Honestly, more hope that that's the way it is and it will be. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 1.12. This is that word boast, a slightly different form. 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Now, in this case, Paul's talking about himself and his associates. Even after 1 Corinthians and other letters, we'll talk about that. There was a previous letter. There's still disputes. There's still problems. And Paul continually had to defend himself and his apostleship to the Corinthians who were attracted to other preachers who seemed to be better and more interesting and enticing. Whether, whether it was they were good-looking or articulate or wealthy, whatever they were, they said to Paul, you're unimpressive. Well, that's in America, anyhow, unimpressive isn't good. But he wasn't there to please man. So that's what this is about. As an apostle, and his, Paul and his associates, is the testimony of their conscience. Sunodasis. The conscience that's telling us that things need to change. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Excuse me. <coughs> Now, 
taught by earthly wisdom. Earthly there, in the Greek, sarkikos, means fleshly. Fleshly. Something that is of this world, the whole person alienated from God is the flesh. It's not anatomical, but fleshly or earthly wisdom. By contrast, by the grace of God. And supremely so toward you. Paul said that during those 18 months that he was there, and then in his letters, he is who he claims to be, an apostle converted by Christ. They challenged that. He had their best interests in mind. They challenged that. He spoke for God. They challenged that. He told them the truth. They challenged that. He warned them about what was wrong. They didn't like that. And so there's this continual battle with the church in Corinth. So, but we learned something. What sort of boasting is appropriate. So what we're going to find, you can start looking for this. I'll, I'll get to it in a moment. In your Bibles, find Jeremiah 9.23. And then we're going to look at 24, but I'll, I'll say a few things while you're looking for that. The 9.23 and 24 is alluded to a number of times in the New Testament, so that's why it's important. Paul is not prohibiting boasting, but he's prohibiting boasting in man, boasting in fleshly or worldly wisdom, boasting in things that were simply given by God as a gift and as if we generated in ourselves something we wouldn't have if God hadn't given it to us. These things are in the Bible. So um, so this word for to boast is based on the same word. And uh, boasting can be either sinful or virtuous depend upon, depending upon who we boast in. Okay. So the key issue that caused sinful boasting in Corinth was making judgments about the relative value of different Christians and leaders. Remember, 1 Corinthians 1, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, as if Christ was just one part of the sect, and they didn't get it right. We want to keep score. I'm better because I'm of this group. And we need to ditch keeping score and remember who God has put in his family. So they made judgments about the relative value of different Christians and leaders and gifts for that matter. We haven't got to that yet. We think we know what's important, but there are things that God knows that we don't. So let's now, have you found Jeremiah 9.23? Here we go. I'll read it. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus saith the Lord, Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, 
who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Yahweh. Hold on. Now this is alluded to, we already covered 1 Corinthians one thirty one. let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That's Septuagint, part of the Septuagint of Jeremiah 9. Now what does it mean to boast in the Lord? Well, in the corporate solidarity of the church, and if we want to talk about the universal church, it would be all who truly are redeemed, to know Christ, to be in Christ is the people who know the Lord relationally. Here is the key thing to be thinking about. Our status vis-a-vis God in his calling or other people and what they think and believe, it's about relationship, not knowledge of facts or talents or money or any of these things. Because as mentioned, who's wiser in the worldly sense of it? Who is stronger or richer? Who has this? Who has that? No. Do you know me to be the most popular, seemingly desirable, wonderful person in the whole world, with envied by everyone, is worthless compared to being anyone of no account in the eyes of anybody else who knows the Lord. That's throughout the Old Testament. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in tents of wickedness. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, Jeremiah says. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. To be someone never noticed, never known, never important, never getting any kind of accolades, but knowing the Lord and loving the Lord and trusting him is to have greater riches than the most popular people in the whole world. And that's an amazing thing. And it's there in Jeremiah. And so Paul did boast. He wasn't saying boasting is always prohibited, but false boasting is. He boasted that God had called him and used him, and he was able to minister with simplicity and godly sincerity. So fleshly wisdom is going to do no good. That's revolutionary, by the way. That's why, do you know how many billions of dollars are invested in Christian educational institutions in which you will never find godly wisdom, no matter how hard you look. You know how many billions of dollars are in structures, institutions founded for Christian ideas and principles, prestigious, able to give a degree to someone and give them instant status, who have nothing to do with Christ the gospel, or forgiveness of sins. In some even recent ones, 
the same thing happens. So, what do we do? We define the church biblically, and we gather together, and we encourage one another, and we boast in the Lord. That he'll put up with us shows he's a merciful and loving God who forgives sins. And he makes us unleavened, not us. Wouldn't be possible. They have a ceremony, the unleavened bread in Judaism, where the father gets a candle. Have you you heard of that? And then you go around the house to make sure there's no leaven anywhere. Well, we know God takes the leaven out. We could never find it all. Let's go to the last slide. I'm guessing on the time. I forgot to start the timer. Who do I got? Some? Ten, five minutes? Ten. All right. <laughs> if I can't preach two verses in ten minutes, I don't know. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new cre- creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The Greek is interesting here. He is is not in the Greek. You probably notice it's in italics in your English Bible. So there's some dispute about what that entails. Literally says, anyone in Christ, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's a, the word for creation is there. So let me cite a few scholars and then comment on that and make sure we finish the gospel. I gave you the first part of it. So, in Christ, new creation. Dr. Garland says the phrase in Christ can mean several things. They're not mutually exclusive. That one belongs to Christ. That one lives in the sphere of Christ's power. That one is united with Christ. Or that one is part of the body of Christ, the believing community. All are true. If you are born of God... You have the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. You're part of the family of God. You're in the sphere. Christ is at work. You are his. He said, my sheep know my voice. They come to me. That doesn't mean hear words in your mind. It means you respond to the gospel. And you come out and follow him. Uh United with him. We'll see that in chapter 12, being attached to the head. Part of the body. We're part of the believing community. So we need to treat each other accordingly. We need to just be done with who's the greatest and embrace, thank God, and part of the family of God. There's a song, Join Heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I love that about some of the small little churches I was part of as a brand new Christian. They they had songs that were about God will save anybody who comes to him. It's not about our status. They didn't have much going for them in the world, but they had each other and they had the Lord. He is not in the Greek, so in Christ new creation, the work of God's grace. Dr. Barrett says Paul is thinking neither 
of mysticism nor of ecclesiastical institutions, but of a transference by faith in Christ, who experienced the messianic affliction and was raised from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. He continues, from the present age into the age to come. Continuing, such a transference is properly described as a new act of creation. Since the only conceivable analogy to God's act is inaugurating the new age, which doesn't mean new age movement, but the new church, the age of the church, is creation of the world, the beginning, and now creating saints out of sinners. What sort of stock is there out there? Sometimes we think in the wrong way. We see someone who is kind and courteous and has good manners and basically honest. We think, well, that person would make a good Christian. Well, if you saw were there when Paul was ranting about killing Christians, I don't think anybody thought, I think he'd make a good Christian. God doesn't work based on what we think would make a good Christian. I know he, nobody would have thought I'd make one if I was angry. But it's God's work of making a new creation. In Galatians 6.15, it says, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Galatians 6.15. God is the one who makes new creations. What about you? Perhaps you're hearing this and you've been part of a church, or maybe you've never been in one before, and uh, you wonder what this is all about. It's not about who's holier than thou. It's not about who's pious. It's not about somebody good enough to be a Christian. It's about Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Redemption, forgiveness, renewal. I've mentioned who Jesus is. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven, poured out the Holy Spirit, and he commanded that repentance for release from sins be preached in his name. Today, if you have not, turn to Christ. Turn to him alone. He died for sins. He forgives. He redeems. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And we're not preaching human achievement, but forgiveness and redemption and God changing lives. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what a new creation looks like. It's what God does. And for those who know him, I think we all have the same prayer. Dear Lord, help me to live up to the imperative that's grounded in the indicative. If I am new unleavened, then may that be more evident day by day as God changes us. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. Thank you for allowing us to look into these things which you have revealed for our good. And may we be at one and the same time 
loving and kind to all we encounter, whatever their state is, as we share the gospel, and encouraging to those who know you that we may live up to our holy calling. Help us to trust you and be sincere and true and not put on any religious ears. Help us as we love you and one another. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.